you to take your Bibles and open them up to Mark chapter 9. This morning, I hope to finish our exposition here of Mark 9. We've been working through this Gospel just paragraph by paragraph, section by section, sometimes verse by verse, sometimes word um, for word. Um, next morning, um, I'm going to by... Uh, I'm not sure how you say this. By command of the elders to preach a sermon on giving. So if you want to come and be convicted about how much you keep and how little you give, come next week and we will talk about that. Giving to the glory of Christ. And then I'll be on vacation for a few weeks. Um, Darren is preaching one week. Um, the Clintons are going to be here one week. And then Kip Sonsek from uh, Grace Church DuPage will be here one week. I encourage you to come. It's going to be a, a great time uh, with those men as we will get some much needed rest. Um, we're looking forward to, to that. And I want to warn you before I, I read the, the text here this morning in Mark chapter 9 that these are some of the most difficult words in Mark for sure and even in all of the Bible. They're difficult to understand, difficult to interpret, and even difficult to apply on several levels. Some levels just trying to figure out how to apply it, but on some levels it's even we see the application and it's just hard hard to do. A little bit like Matthew chapter 5 that I, that I read. And yet, as difficult as they are, because we're committed to exposition and just working through texts of the Bible, um, we're going to go through these verses. It's really very good. And to be honest with you, if I wasn't committed to exposition, I'd never preach from these verses. I mean, if I was just preaching topical and choose my, my subject matter of what I wanted to preach about, We'd never see these verses never see the light of day. Because not only are they hard, but also they, they deal with some very sobering, difficult words about judgment and hell that quite frankly are are hard to, to bring. They're not such wonderful things to dwell upon, and, and most of us would not want to dwell on, on those things. And yet here we are, and I trust as it is God's word, it has something for us we need not to ignore passages like this. And I just encourage you with a, a quote from Mark Dever, who, who said this, just dealing with judgment and hell. He said this, Avoiding the doctrine of hell is one step away from denying it altogether. So if, if, if a church is just avoiding and ignoring the doctrine of hell, it's got to take that one more step and denies it altogether. And the thing that protects us and helps us is continuous exposition, just going through verse by verse the next, the next section. But, Mark Dever continues, when you get this right, when you get the judgment right, when you begin to teach clearly and regularly that there is a judgment, then there's an appropriate care and humility that begins to characterize your congregation's life together as we realize the brevity of life and its seriousness and the certainty of judgment. And we feel ourselves to be more objects of mercy than being judged. We, we find ourselves and feel ourselves more pilgrims than settlers and more stewards than owners. And I just trust that God will, will do that here this morning as we deal with some hard, hard words about the reality of, of hell. Well, let me read them for you. And not all of it deals with hell. This, a portion of it does. Verse 38 through 50. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. 
But Jesus said, Do not hinder him, for there's no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For he was not against us, is for us. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if, with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. And if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell into the unquenchable fire where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having two feet to be cast into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. For it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell, where the worm does not die and where the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Has salt in yourselves, be at peace with one another. Well, this morning I have three points. My message, hopefully, just coming right out of the text. My, my message this morning is entitled Road to the Kingdom. I, I do believe that is the, the overarching theme here. They're trying to figure out who goes to the kingdom. How, how's, how do you get to the kingdom? Who, who's in and who's out? Really stemming if you go back even to verse 33 when they're talking about who is the, the greatest in the kingdom. Verse 34. They wanted to find out who is the greatest in the kingdom. And then, then John saw this person casting out demons and, and he tried to stop him because they weren't part of us because we're on the road to the kingdom and not them. And then Jesus speaks about how to get on the road to the kingdom is to take drastic actions regarding your sin and how we need to be salty on that road. So that's my title and message this morning. My first point is this. It's a wide road. The road of the kingdom is a wide road. You've got to hear that and you've got to say, Wait a minute! Wait a minute, that, that's like not true. Because Jesus, as I read earlier, entered through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. There are many that enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And few there are who find it. Jesus said the way to the kingdom is narrow. But my point is the road to the kingdom is a wide road. Jesus said the way of the kingdom comes only through Him. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. That's a narrow road. Peter said, Acts chapter 4, verse 12, there's salvation no one else. There's no other name under heaven that's been given among men by which we must be saved. It's only through Jesus. It is a, a narrow road. Indeed, we don't come to the kingdom through Moses or Muhammad or Gandhi or Confucius. We only come through Jesus Christ. His sacrifice on the cross is the only way to God. It's the only way we're going to enter. Indeed, the the road to the kingdom is, is narrow. And that's the, word, that's the message the world needs to hear. Enter through the narrow gate. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Don't trust in your works. That's the narrow road to heaven. And yet, for the disciples of Christ to whom Jesus was speaking, here's our warning. We must not make the road too narrow. Because that's what Jesus was doing here. The world needs to hear that salvation is narrow. But we need to see that the that, that, that the gate of Jesus is wider than we may first think. Now, if you struggle with that concept, I'm kind of trying to rock your socks a little bit here. Just consider this, that Jesus, who's the same one who said that few will be in the kingdom, 
He's the same Jesus who said, many will come from the east and the west to recline at the table of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So is it few or is it many? Well, yes, it's few who are going to find that gate, but many are those who are going to actually find that small gate. So which is it? Is the road to the kingdom wide or is the road to the kingdom narrow? What's the answer? Yes, it's the answer. It, all, it depends really what perspective you're taking. And here in our text, we see Jesus speaking with the disciples, saying that the, the road to the kingdom is wide. That's what verse 38 is. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. Let's just stop there for a little bit and really think about this. This question kind of comes out of the blue. Jesus had just spoken about who is the greatest Whoever receives a child in my name is the greatest, caring for the weak. And then John talks about casting out demons and trying to prevent him. Why did he do that? Well, maybe John was convicted that I'm wrong and I need to change the subject. You ever done that? There's some kind of subject that's talking about. He said, I don't want to talk about that. And so he changes. Maybe John's doing the whole switcheroo, change the topic. Uh, Maybe um, John was convicted and wanted Jesus' perspective. Maybe it's even coming about this whole in Jesus' name because Jesus said in verse 37, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And then John said, oh, well, there was someone casting out demons in your name. And so asking about this name and maybe he was curious. We We don't know why, but some of those might be reasons. But we do know a bit about this man who was casting out demons. He wasn't one of the 12 disciples. He was using the name of Jesus. He was speaking with Jesus' authority, even though he wasn't given permission to do so. And he was having success. The demons were coming out. We saw someone casting out demons in your name. They were coming out. He, this man was having success. Unlike the disciples. Remember when Jesus and John and Peter and James were on the Mount of Transfiguration down below, the nine disciples were trying to cast out the demons. They couldn't. But here's this man, not part of our clan. He's casting out demons in your name. And, and this man wasn't some would-be exorcist like the sons of Sceva, Jewish brothers who tried to invoke the name of Jesus and were, ended up being overcome by the evil, that they, the evil spirit they tried to cast out. No, this man was casting out demons and having a successful ministry and doing well. And somehow it appears he was a believer in Christ. Maybe he'd heard Jesus speak and believe. He just didn't have a relationship with the disciples. And the disciples, as a result, tried to prevent him. Right? We tried to prevent him. It wasn't just John. It was the other disciples saying, hey, you're not part of us. And see, the whole rub was, was not so much Jesus' name. as that They're not part of us. We're here and we've got the truth. And they're there and they don't have the truth. So he tried to prevent him. It's so John, right? John was called in Mark chapter seven, 3, verse 17, the son of thunder. And at one time when, when the Jews didn't receive the message of Jesus, he said, oh, can we command fire to come down out of heaven and consume them? I mean, he's just a fiery guy. <clears throat> Eventually, he changed to, be the, changed to be the apostle of love, but he was a fiery guy who didn't want these people involved. And he was jealous for the ministry of Jesus, wanted to lift up and uphold the ministry of Jesus, just like Eldad and Medad. Remember them? These were two guys prophesying in the camp. The story is told in Numbers chapter 11. And the Spirit of God rests upon them and they prophesied. And people discovered about that. And they brought message to Joshua. Joshua then brought message to Moses and said, Moses, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. Because after all, the truth only comes through you, Moses. It doesn't come through them. And you remember Moses' response? Moses responded with grace. He said this, Numbers 11:29. Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put His Spirit upon them. Moses was the most humble of all men, 
It says that in the next chapter, chapter 12, verse 3. But he said, would that all God's people were prophets. It's wonderful that they're prophesying. And Jesus really responds the same way. Why stop someone whom the Lord is using? And that's what Jesus is saying. You don't need to stop someone whom the Lord is using. And that's what Jesus said, verse 39. Do not hinder him. For there is no one who perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. In other words, Jesus is saying the road to heaven is a bit more broad than you think. You think that the only way to the kingdom is through you, disciples. But God's bigger than that. God's bigger than you twelve disciples. Or as I have said, the road to the kingdom is a wide road. And how appropriate this message was for John who thought it was only his way with Jesus was the only way. But this man through Jesus was the way as well. I'm reminded of the story of the Christians who arrived their first day in heaven. They were greeted by angels and and escorted by angels quickly into this elevator. And the elevator started going up. Floor one, floor two, floor three. And, and these Christians were really excited about what was happening. And how about to see Jesus face to face. And you know, really encouraged. And thinking about what's it going to be like. And they're talking. And it ascends four, five, six. And the elevator keeps going up. And they're really excited about it. And, and as soon as they reached about the seventh floor, the angel said, shh. And, and the murmur went down. And then, and then the angel said, okay, it's okay, you can talk again. And they're like, what, what was that about? Why did you tell us to be quiet? He said, oh, oh, because the Baptists are on the eighth floor and they think they're the only ones here. <laughs> now, obviously this is a joke. I'm not sure there's elevators in heaven. I'm not sure that whole thing. But, but, I know there are people who think that my group is the only group that's going to be in heaven. That's the exact same problem the disciples had. Their road was too narrow and Jesus was trying to broaden it a bit. Presbyterians think they're right. Nobody else is going to heaven. Non-denominationalists like us think we're right and nobody else is going to heaven. And those who think they have a corner on the truth need to hear these words. The road to the kingdom is wide. But many Christians think they have the corner on the truth that they're the only way to heaven. The truth of the matter is this. They're may well be more people in the kingdom than you think. You may look upon people and say, oh, I, I don't know, I don't know. But it's all matters of what God thinks about them. If they're not against you, they're for you, is what Jesus said here. And so, I just say this, church family, let us rejoice wherever God is working. Let us not be more narrow than Jesus. Let us not be more narrow than Paul. There's this fascinating passage in Philippians chapter 1. Paul, you remember, is in prison for preaching the Gospel. And... Um, you know, as a result of that, he's excited because more people out there are being bold than to preach the Word because they said, oh, if Paul is in prison for it and he's enduring, certainly I can go out and preach as well. Um, but then there are others who are not preaching Christ exactly right. So here's what Paul said, First Philippians 1.15. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the Gospel, but the former... Proclaim Christ from selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Do you catch what Paul's saying? He's in prison, and there are people who are preaching Christ with bad motives. They're preaching Christ with envy, preaching Christ from strife, 
They're proclaiming Christ with a selfish ambition, trying to hurt Paul in prison. Because they were enemies with Paul. And yet they're out, out preaching Christ. And, and, and they're saying even this to Paul. Look, Paul, you're not the only one that can preach Christ. We can as well. Look, at many people are coming to Christ under our preaching. You aren't the big shot that you think you are. And Paul responds gently. Right? A gentle answer turns away wrath. And Paul rejoiced. Well, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Paul's view of the road was bigger than many people would have it to be. So let us not be more restrictive than Paul. Let's not be more restrictive than Jesus. No, the kingdom, the road to the kingdom is wide. It embraces many denominations, many different beliefs. You know, it's very interesting. As you go through the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and 3, the churches in Revelation, um, two of those churches are good churches, five of those churches are bad churches, but even within those bad churches, there are people there who are on the right road. I, I just think of this verse, uh, I think it's Revelation chapter 3, I'm not sure, verse 4 maybe, but you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Here you have a dead church. But you have a few people who are walking in white and Christ says that they will walk with me for they are worthy. You, you, you've got saved people in dead denominations. Right? You have saved people in liberal denominations. You have saved people in apostate denominations. Now, I, I believe that the better the church, the stronger the message, the clearer the gospel is, you, you attract the elect for sure. Okay? But, but even in places where the truth really isn't taught so well, there are... There are few, and there are some. And I just know that many will enter having different beliefs than me. Arminians, or paedo-baptists, or congregationalists, or charismatics, or post-millennialists, or theistic evolutionists, or feminists, or annihilationists, theonomists, evidentialists, pragmatics, pragmatists, even those who are pro-choice, even those who have an easy believism gospel, even those who believe in second-degree separation, those who believe musical instruments are wrong in the worship service, those who allow women preachers, those who believe the Bible contains errors. Listen, there are people who have those deviant beliefs who are still on the road. Now, the main people who have those beliefs who are not on the road, for sure. But there's going to be a lot of people who are going to arrive in the kingdom with error in their theology. But despite their theology, they may get in if they have trusted in the Gospel. If Jesus really is the one they're trusting alone to cleanse them from the sin, they'll be in heaven. And praise be to God that's the case. Listen, if we could only get to God by having perfect theology, where would we be? We'd be in hell. There might be one group that's there. In fact, I have a, a former friend who believes that you have to get all your theology right to get right into heaven. You know how many people are involved in this church? About 12, maybe. He believes he's the only true church in the whole world. And, and, and we need to see that there are, are beliefs where maybe we're wrong. I mean, we, as we go through the Scriptures, we just see and are constantly adjusting our, our theology for sure. But, but if you had to get into heaven only if all your theology was correct... We'd be lost. As James Montgomery Boyce once wrote, if sinners could be saved from sin by philosophical debate, the wise, the brilliant might get in, but what of those of low estate? In, in other words, right? If, we're, if we could get in by being really smart enough and figuring out the Bible, well, smart people would get in, but what about folks of low estate? What about folks like us? 
but we preach Christ the crucified, a gospel wicked souls count odd. They think it foolish, weak, despised, but we the power of God. Our gospel is simply Christ alone, for we know God sent Him to give a righteousness that's not our own and holiness that we might live. Listen, it's simple faith and trust in Christ that's a road to the kingdom. Now, having said that, let me balance that. It's okay for us at Rock Valley Bible Church to have our convictions of the things that we believe. It's okay, it's good for you to have your convictions about what, what you believe. We ought to believe that we're right. We ought to believe our theology is strong. We've got to defend it and contend for it vigorously. That's what Jesus did. That's what Paul did. I'm not throwing theology out the window, but I, I'm merely saying this. Realize that there are many who aren't in our camp who God is using greatly. And we need to rejoice wherever God is using people. And there are many people who disagree with us on various issues, nevertheless believing in the saving gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's what we must rejoice in. We must rejoice in every little thing done for Christ. That's what verse 41 is talking about. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. Even a cup of cold water to refresh the souls of those going out to proclaim His name will be rewarded. It's a little gifts even to spread the Gospel. We need to rejoice at that. Listen, God will sort it out in the end. We just simply need to rejoice when the Gospel's clear and we need to pray for other churches as I have done. We need to rejoice when, when a church just next to us uh, flourishes because the Gospel is flourishing. Let us not think that Rock Valley Bible Church is the kingdom of kingdoms and the only road to God. It's wider than we think. Well, the road to the kingdom is a wide road. Second point, the road to the kingdom is a difficult road. This is where things are hard, right? Verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if, with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than having two hands to go into hell, into the unquenchable fire. And verse 44 isn't in some of your Bibles. It's in some Bibles. It's a textual variant in the original Greek manuscripts. We won't get into that. I'll just read it. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet and be cast into hell where the worm does not die and the Fire is not quenched. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out, for it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, a key word in these verses here is the word stumble. Scandalon, where we get the Greek word scandal. Um, it, it, it may mean in some sense you're stumbling like you're walking along, you stumble over a rock or you stumble over a log or something like that, you trip on your shoelaces. But it, but it has a, a bigger metaphorical meaning, which it means here to describe uh, causing someone to stumble is to tempt them to sin or to lead them astray or to snare them somehow. And verse 42 addresses snaring someone else, snaring these little ones who believe. And verses 43 through 48 are talking about being snared yourself. So that's why I say that it's a key word of, of, of snaring people, trapping people, causing them to be a stumbling block. And the context here is dealing with those whom we disagree, like those who aren't in our camp. I, I think that's the primary application here, verse 48, when you cause a little one who believed to stumble, it'd be better for him for a heavy millstone to be hung around his deck and to be cast in the sea. So Jesus gives a picture. He gives a picture of an awful death. 
In ancient Israel, they used a millstone to grind their wheat. This was essentially a, a big flat stone um, that could be set upon another stone and then turned around a crank. It's got a, 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 you could put a post through the middle and you could turn the stone around. So stone upon stone going like this would crush the, the wheat there and form the wheat into flour. Now, they had two sizes of these stones. One was like a personal size and one was like a super size, right? McDonald's didn't get that idea from nowhere. The personal size is a small one enough for people to push around and to be able to push the, the, to turn the stone around. Now, a large one, however, you need a donkey or beast of burden to turn that thing because it was so big. And this is talking about the larger the size, several feet in diameter, which is huge and heavy to lift. Right? Take 20 men maybe to lift this thing makes the imagery all the more horrible. Can you imagine being taken to the dock on a lake and having this flat stone somehow slipped over your head like a necklace? This stone that takes many men to lift, it comes right over you and it's here like this and, and somehow you're secured to the stone and then they give you a little push in the, in the lake and, and I'm telling you, you've just breathed your last. There's no way you're going to get out of that thing. You'll probably tumble head first down into the ground and you'll be, you'll be there in you, ten minutes, you'll be done. Like ten minutes, you'll be drowning suffocating to death. And Jesus intensely wants us to see that it is, a, it is a gruesome death. But that gruesome death is to be preferred over causing a little one who believed to stumble. This goes back a little bit last week to verse 37. Whoever receives a child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. There's the, the idea of just even a child, a weak one, and how important it is to receive such a child like that. And Jesus here, I, I think he's referring to, though, a young believer because he explicitly mentions here in verse 41, verse 42, the one who believe in me to stumble. I think he's talking about a young believer. Now, that could be young in age, or it could be young in belief. This could be talking about a 50-year-old who just comes to faith in Christ. You need to be sensitive to people who just come to Christ, I think is what he's saying here. Don't cause them to stumble. Don't, don't snare them or entice them in, in any way. You don't want to lead them astray. And so I think in some regards, you need to be careful towards those who disagree with you. If they're a little one, you need to deal with them with care and compassion. You don't need to crush little ones upon the head for any little thing that they say wrong. You need to gently come alongside of them. Now, if they are a false teacher, obviously reprove them, rebuke them, exhort them, refute them strongly, and right, and with full gusto. But if they are a young believer and simply misguided, win them. Don't crush them. Remember Priscilla and Aquila when they encountered Apollos? Apollos was mighty in the Scriptures. He was fervent in spirit, but he was only familiar with John's ministry. And he was preaching about John the Baptist, preaching repentance and preaching it strong and clear. He wasn't, he wasn't aware of Jesus' ministry. And so Priscilla and Aquila tactfully took this man aside and demonstrated and explained to him the way of God more accurately with respect to Jesus. As a result of that, then Apollos learned from them and went out and powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. I mean, here was a, here was a, a young one who believed in me. He had strength, but he was just... He was just misguided. And they, they guided him a right way. And so if a young believer says a few strange things, because theology hasn't read there, I mean, he hasn't read, read Wayne Grudem's systematic theology yet, that's okay. Be patient and let some bad things be said. 
and come alongside of them and help them. Consider who's saying it. They may be sincere, but they may be uninformed and be patient with them and help inform them at a proper time to grow and don't just crush them. And certainly there are lots of other applications here in terms of uh, talking about causing a, a little one who believes in me to stumble. I'm certainly talking about children probably. Let's not cause children of this church by our example or by the things we say who, who are open and willing and profess some faith and belief and trust in Jesus. Let's not so live that leads them at the end of the day to say, Rockefeller Bible Church, hypocrites, I'm done with you. Let's not lead them into sin. Uh, maybe new believers, young believers, oftentimes come out of a life of sin. Maybe they're not mature enough to understand and embrace the freedoms that other more mature believers can face. They need a pure way. So let's, let's help young believers in a pure way, in a right way. Let's not cause them to sin. Let's not be a, a stumbling block for them because the consequences are just awful for you. And, and look at how Jesus argues. I, I love this. And this is what we'll look at next week when we talk about giving. It's the best thing for you. It's more blessed to give than to receive, right? It, it's, a, it's a blessing to you. It's good for you. And Jesus says, good for you if you don't cause one of these little ones to stumble. Because if you do, look at how bad it's going to be. So stay away from that. But beyond enticing others to sin, um, we may also bring ourselves down. That's what verses 43 to 48 are about. Jesus again presents a horrible image. Self-amputation. He pictures you chopping off your hand. Just, just, just chopping it off. He pictures you chopping off your foot. He pictures you gouging your eye out for the sake of Christ. And he presents these things, by the way, as the more preferable option to Gehenna and hell. If your hand or foot or eye cause you to stumble, this is what he says in every single verse, verses 43 to 48, then, then cut it off. It's better for you to enter life without your hand, your foot, or your eye being crippled and lamed or blind, then having them to be cast into hell, into the unquenchable fire where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, I know children here can understand that language. I, I do remember one time, I forget whether it was Krissa or whether it was, I think it was Stephanie. I, I think it was about four years ago. It may have been like 12 years ago. I can't remember. But I was talking to one of my kids, a uh, little, little girl, I remember, maybe five years old, something like that. And I was going over a text like this and just thought, hmm, Stephanie, I think it was Stephanie, Stephanie, would you, would you rather enter into heaven with only one hand or would you rather go to hell with two hands? And you know what she said? She said, I'd rather go to heaven with two hands. That's <laughs> what she said. <laughs> And then I said, no, 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 no. And I asked it again, and she gave the same response again. We, we'd rather go to heaven, certainly, with, with two hands. But you know what? There have been people who have had to make a, a choice in their life whether they're going to do away with their hand and live or keep their hand and die. And every now and then, this, this kind of story happens. Uh, I'll just tell you three of them. In 2003, a guy named Aaron Ralston took a hike through the Blue John Canyon, southeastern Utah. He was navigating this, this deep, small, narrow canyon, sometimes just even shoulder width. And as he was navigating down this canyon, an 800-pound boulder 
hit his left hand and then jammed his right hand against the wall of the canyon. He couldn't move. He was stuck there. And he starts thinking about it. He didn't tell anyone where he's going. He's out in this remote place, 20 miles from the nearest paved road. He was 100 feet below the surface of this canyon. Yes, he was. No way he's going to be spotted. No way anyone's going to He had no trace. He had no choice. His only chance for survival was to amputate his arm. So he did with a pocket knife. He took it out, cut off his right arm, and then fighting shock, he, he climbed out of that canyon, walked seven miles to where his car was, climbed up this 800-foot embankment to the trailhead where his truck was parked, and finally found safety. Aaron Ralston lost his arm, but saved his life. That was 2003. Another one, 2007, Samson Parker harvesting corn in South Carolina. At one point, the stalks of corn in this machine, I don't know exactly where it was. He was out in the field someplace. Out, nobody was around for miles. Uh, some of the stalks of corn got stuck in a set of rollers, right? So sure enough, he puts his, his hand in there to try to get the, the rollers off and his glove catches, his hand catches, and he's in the machine as he tried to get out. It even sucked him further in. Somehow he could stop. He found this metal, whatever, bar or screwdriver or something like that. And he stopped the cogs of the wheel and tried to, tried to get it out. And he was in there, I think, uh, I'm not sure, I think he was there for an hour yelling, but nobody could hear him. And then suddenly this machine, which was still going and trying to go, was heating up and had fired and started a fire. And so there's this fire there and his, his skin, he said, began to melt before him. And so he had to act quick. And what he did was his skin was just kind of falling off. He cut all around and then dropped and fell to break his arm so he could go and finally find a place of safety. As soon as he left, the tire exploded and he kind of pushed him away so he was saved just in the nick of time. Samson Parker lost an arm, but he saved a life. Well, just a year ago, John Hutt, 61-year-old retired logger from Colorado, had gone to the woods by himself to get some firewood for him. And at one point, a six-ton trailer slipped somehow and landed on his foot and trapped his foot. And so he's, he's trapped there and he couldn't move. His cell phone's in the, in the truck. He didn't tell his wife where he's going. He just went out. Who knows how long it's going to be. He's, he's there bleeding. He's trapped. He doesn't know what to do. He cuts away his pocket knife. He cuts away his boot and he sees how his toes are just smashed and done. And I'm not sure if his life was totally at stake but he knew he had to cut off his toes. And so he, he cut them off. He said this, it hurt so bad, I'd cut for a while and then I had to rest. But you never know what could have happened. He lost his toes but saved his life, did John Hutt. Each of these men took drastic actions to save their life. They saw the danger of their circumstances. They knew there's no other way to live but to cut off a part of their body. And so they did and so they lived and Jesus says, listen, you may very well be in the same predicament. Our lives are in danger. We're headed to hell, a horrible place where the worm does not die, where the fire is not quenched. And it may be that your body members are bringing you there. It may be that the only way out to reach the kingdom is take some radical action and like cutting off a limb. Now, all the commentators are with Stephanie on this one, all right? They want to enter heaven with two hands and with two eyes and with two feet. And in fact, all commentators would agree that um, 
This is not literal. Jesus isn't wanting one-eyed, one-footed, one-armed creatures to be walking around the church. Can you imagine that? And, and, and I think here's why. Is, is if I was one, one-handed, right, and one-footed and one-eyed, do you think I could still sin? Do you think if I got out both eyes and both hands and both feet, I could still sin? I could. See, those are just external body parts that merely help and aid in sin. But still, the source of sin is the heart. We're sinners at heart, and still the lust of the heart is there. We can sin very well apart from our hands and our feet and our eyes. But what Jesus is saying is He's saying take radical action. If it meant chop your hand and that would solve your sin problem and get to heaven, we'd chop our hands off. Remember when Jesus came to the rich young ruler, which we'll get in Mark chapter 10 here? He says, one thing you left, go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor. This is what he had to do. He had to sell everything and then and give to the poor and then follow Jesus. He didn't do it. He's calling for radical commitment. And so likewise, if he said, you just chop off your hand and then you come and follow me and you'll be in the kingdom, we could do that. But it, it's not, our sin is deeper than that. This is just merely external. Removing our hand isn't going to help that. But if, if it did, by all means, let's purchase pocket knives and let's sharpen them up. Kent Hughes really good. He said this. What Jesus is calling for is not physical mutilation, but spiritual mortification. The cutting off of harmful practices from one's life. The hand, the foot, and the eye encompass the totality of life. The hand symbolizes what we do. The foot symbolizes where we go. And the eye symbolizes what we see. His logic is impeccable and compelling. It's better to clean up your fleeting life here through some healthy self-denial than go bearing your sins into an unending Gehenna, an eternal smoking rubbish heap where the worm eternally gorged themselves in the refuse of your life. Any sacrifice, any discipline, any self-denial is worth this. And that's what Jesus is talking about. The road to the kingdom is difficult. He's calling for radical action. You know, we teach our children this song. And if you know it, you can sing along with me, right? Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. For your Father up above is looking down in love. So be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little hands, what you do. Oh, be careful, little hands, what you do. For your Father up above is looking down in love. So be careful, little hands, what you do. Everyone, if you haven't learned it from now, you can. Oh, be careful, little feet, where you go. Oh, be careful, little feet, where you go. For your Father up above is looking down in love. So be careful, little feet, where you go. We know all about that, right? That's what Jesus is saying here. He's looking down with love. Jesus isn't saying these words to condemn. He's saying them to persuade. Your your Father's looking in love. This is the best thing for you to look out what your your feet are doing. And, And we teach this to our children. But do we teach ourselves? Do we look at what our hands are doing? Do we look at what our feet are doing? Do we look at what our eyes are seeing? Can we say like Job, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to gaze upon a virgin. 
can we do with what Paul says? Whatever your hand does, do it with all your might and diligence, serving the Lord. Do we believe with John Owen that we ought to make it our business all of our days to mortify the indwelling power of sin? God calls us to deal radically with our sin. Don't let it run amok. Don't deal with it lightly. Fight with it with all your strength because eternity is at stake. I mean, this, is, this is hell of what it's talking about. He describes hell as this most awful of words. Verse 44, 46, 48 have these. Gehenna is the, is the word here for hell. It's used 12 times in the Bible. 11 times Jesus uses this word. It, Gehenna was this place that was also used about... It's the garbage heap that, that's just continuing to burn and continuing to be stinky right outside Jerusalem. It's where they put all their garbage. They said, that's what hell is like. It's this stinky, awful place. It describes a place of unending torment. The worm feeding on your flesh from the inside and fire feeding on your flesh from the outside that never stops, Paul describes, eternal destruction. Far better to lose a limb than to face that. Our life here is a breath. And you want to face that for eternity? And Jesus didn't just get these words from any place. He pulled them right from the very last verse in Isaiah. And Isaiah is describing the eternal, enduring state. He writes of the godly who are in the kingdom. Listen to what he says. Isaiah 66, 22. For just as the new heavens and the new earth which I make will endure before me, right? the new heavens and the new earth will endure forever, he said, so your offspring and your name will endure. Talking to the godly ones. And it shall be from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all mankind will come to bow down before me. And then speaks about these people. Now, how this works in heaven, I'm not sure, but it is the reality of eternal state. They, these eternal ones, lasting forever, will go down and look on the corpses of men who have transgressed against me, for their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched. And they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. It's like they all have their personal worms that just kind of eats and eats and eats and eats and eats and eats and eats forever. And they have their personal fire that burns and 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 burns forever. Listen, hell's a real place. Hell's a place that, according to Isaiah 66, we will see these people. Awful. See, a real place, it's an awful place. It's a place by God's grace through faith that we can escape that place. Just believe in Him and trust in Him and, and join in fighting against sin. And really, the, the choice is yours. Do you want to endure never-ending being an object of God's wrath or do you want to be a never-ending recipient of God's mercy through Christ? What do you want? Of course, I hope you want Christ. Let's side with Christ and cherish His mercy. In fact, even like Mark Dever said that quote earlier, that, that just even, even reflecting upon the judgment says that in Christ we can be free from that. We don't have to face that. What a good thing. What a gracious God we serve. Alright. We just have a little time left and I'm good. Verses 49 to 50 are very difficult. Let's move on to my third point. The road of the kingdom is a wide road, a difficult road, and here it is a salty road. Verses 49 to 50. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now, at this point, we come to the most, one of the most difficult verses in all the Bible. I, I read J.C. Ryle, one of my favorite commentators. He says this. Verse 49 appears to baffle all the commentators. What it means that everyone will be salted with fire. 
the true meaning of these words and their connection with the context are problems which seem not yet to be solved. At all events, not one of the many interpretations which have been proposed so far as entirely satisfactory must confess that it is one of those knots which are not yet untied in the exposition of Scripture. My own conviction is that we must wait for more light and regard the text at present as one of those deep things of God. Now, J.C. Brown writes a commentary to explain the text, and he says, can't explain this verse. So what hope do we have? (laughs) Well, how clear is my point? Verse 3, the road to the kingdom is a salty road. How clear is that? It's about as good as I can do, okay? It's, if it's confusing, it's confusing. But that's, that's where it is. Uh, I don't know what a salty road means, but I think it's the point of what he's talking about here. And that's what verses 49 and 50 uh, appear to six different times. Salt is mentioned. And the verse, the command is clear. Verse 50, have salt in yourselves. Salt in the ancient world would help as two qualities. One is a preserver, and they didn't have refrigerators in those days, so they just just um, put salt on their meat and, and it could keep. And uh, that's what salt did. Salt also gave flavor. It's a preserver and it gave flavor, just like we use it today, right? We have salt on our tables to enhance the flavor. And that's the two things that it really did back then. And, and that's why Jesus affirmed in verse 50 that salt is good. It's got these good uses for it. It'd be very hard if they couldn't preserve their food. Very boring if your food wasn't tasty and and so when he says salt is good, have salt in yourselves, at least he's calling us to these qualities. He says that disciples of Christ have a preserving influence on society. Christians are the ones who start the schools, believing that knowledge will lead to a knowledge of God. Christians are the ones who start hospitals, believing that every soul is precious in God's sight. We're the ones that preserve life and direct people to the Lord. So I just encourage you to do that, right? Champion life. Seek to direct people to the Lord. Seek to educate people and don't lose a heart for people. In verse 50, Jesus speaks about salt which becomes unsalty. Now, we don't, we don't have worthless salt so much in, in our day and age. I mean, the salt that goes in your, in your cabinet pretty much stays there. Maybe it gets wet, but you could theoretically get that, get that out. But salt down by the Dead Sea can be mixed with the gypsum down there and it becomes worthless because it comes mixed with that and it's diluted and it's, it's nothing. It's just as good as gravel at that point. So the salt can become bad. Our preserving influence can grow stale. That's why we need to be on fire for Christ. We also need to be the flavor of life. Our, our lives ought to be a blessing to others. So live a life of blessing, right? Speak truth. Speak kindness. Show kindness. Have joy. Give love. And in fact, that's, that's where the whole text is ending. If you look at verse 50, it says, be at peace with one another. That comes back to their argument in verse 34 about discussing about which one was the greatest. He's saying, you got this salt, it's going to help you at living at peace with one another. And so I think there's this connection between being a, a flavor of life and being salty there as well. And how verse 49 fits into it, I don't know. There's the discussion, who's the everyone? Is, is the everyone um, Christians who are going to be salted through fire, going to be refined through the firing process? The, the refining process of trials, maybe? Is the everyone there, just everyone in the world who's going to be salted with judgment? Is that what it's talking about? Or is it, is it talking about believers and non-believers just going to be salted in death somehow? I have no idea. And I'm not going to say that I do. I just, I just think that we need to be on this salty road that seeks peace with one another and has an influence. And one of the things about salt is that you can't be, 
you can't be oblivious to it. I mean, if it, if it touches you, if you taste salt, it's like, oh, I tasted that. Salt gets in your eye, it's pretty nasty. It's making this response. So I think we just need to be people who make some kind of response. Not a bad response. Salt's a good response that ultimately ends up in godliness and peace with one another. That's as good as I can do, and I just I'll trust the Lord with that. But the other points are, are clear. It's wider maybe than we think the road to heaven. It's more difficult maybe than we think, and it's saltier than we may think. So let's pray. Father, I am thankful for your, your grace to us, that you've made many things in Scripture clear, and even difficult passages like this. God, at least we have a, a chance and opportunity to take a good shot at it. And I pray, Lord, that you would teach us this balance between being narrow enough for Christ and yet being not too narrow. Really, God, I pray here at Rock Valley Bible Church you would teach us where where that balance is in those areas where people disagree or how to treat people who would deny clear doctrines of the Bible um, and yet seemingly you use them. I thank you that you use people who who get things wrong because that's the only way that you'd ever use me. Any way you'd ever use any of us. And, and Father, may we, may we come to grips with the extent to which we need to fight against our sin. Convict us where we're haphazard, lackadaisical. Give us a military wartime mentality that seeks to fight. God, eternity is at stake and our souls are at stake. Help us, O Lord, by your strength to be perfect, even as our Heavenly Father is perfect. We only do that through the power of Christ. So help us to cast aside sin. And then help us, O Lord, to be at peace with one another. God, to live here at Rock Valley Bible Church in love with one another. I pray even for our fellowship time. It's just a time to really be with one another and to know each other and to find out ways to serve one another. I pray, O oh Lord, that you'd help guide this time, just even coming up here in five minutes. Um, God, that we'd be known for our, our love for one another and our, our peace with one another. Uh, Father, because we long for the glory of Jesus. And so we give these truths up to you, and, and I'll pray in Jesus' name, saying, Amen.